grab a Bible and go with me to Zechariah chapter 1. I'm going to start reading today in verse 7. We started our journey through Zechariah last Sunday with a message on repentance or returning to the Lord with, without repentance. We will not inherit the promises of God, but with repentance... We will inherit the promises of God. We will be saved and we will be restored to a right relationship with the Lord. If there's one thing we all need, it is restoration to the Lord. You know, just this week, there were ways that I reacted with impatience toward my children. Uh, There were times when I didn't want to help those who needed my counsel... There were occasions when I complained about the circumstances I was facing or the things I had to sort out. There were tones in my speech that weren't helpful to my brothers. All of it sin against the Lord. All of it grieving the Holy Spirit. All of it hindering vibrancy in my relationship with God. In some form or fashion, we've all blown it. We can all testify to stupid decisions and rebellious attitudes and laziness to pursue good. We need restoration in our relationship to the Lord. God's word through the prophet Zechariah helps us here. Zechariah tells us of the true God who while he is angry with our sin because of his holiness and his love, he is also in the business of restoring his people to himself. And it's not just that he sits back and waits for his people to to come his way. He actually comes to them. He's like the father who runs and embraces his prodigal son. Even though his son squandered his inheritance, the the father races to meet him and celebrates his son's return home. And so also the Lord returns to his people with gracious and comforting words of restoration. Much of this will come through in Zechariah's eight night visions over the next few weeks. We'll look only at the first vision Today, But perhaps a few comments are in order as, as we approach these visions. You know, first off, we shouldn't think of these visions in terms of wacky hallucinations in which Zechariah is mentally checked out. The vision is certainly supernatural. It is given to him from the Spirit of God. But it's not unintelligible craziness. We'll see throughout that Zechariah is very conscious. He's even asking his interpreting angel questions about what he's seeing and sometimes interjecting his own comments here and there. We should see visions more appropriately as as one vehicle among others that God used to reveal himself. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, says that God spoke to our fathers in many and various ways. Vision is one way God spoke to the prophets. 
Notice that before Zechariah says, I saw in the night, verse 7 says, the word of the Lord came. And if you ask, which is it, a vision or a word? The answer is yes. The vision is just the vehicle for God's revelation through word. Something else to note before jumping in here to just a single vision is, is that all eight of these night visions, they paint one picture. They're, they're telling one story. They, they all hang together and, and, and portray a, a single story of how God intends to save his people. You can see this just by glancing at the, at the first and last visions, the first one being here in chapter 1 and the last in chapter 6, and, and both mention some patrolling horsemen doing God's work. It's just that in the, the first vision, God's work to build his kingdom begins, and in the last vision, God's work finishes. So visions 1 and 8 form bookends of sorts to this story of God saving his people and establishing his kingdom of peace on earth. And then as you, as you move inward uh, to, the, to the second and third visions as well as the, the sixth and seventh visions, you see that, that God is, is getting his people out of Babylon by defeating their enemies and gathering to himself, gathering them to himself. That's, that's visions 2 and 3. But he never does this without also getting Babylon out of his people. And that's vision six and seven. The only two we have left then are visions four and five, right in the middle. And in visions four and five, we see that the people need their sin and their guilt atoned for. And and this comes in connection with God's spirit working through his anointed priest and, and king. Both of whom... Anticipate Jesus Christ. So we might summarize the the message of Zechariah's night visions like this. I'll read it to you on the screen here. God establishes his kingdom of peace by cleansing his people from the enemy within, sin, rescuing his people from their enemies without, and then gathering his people to dwell in his presence all through the work of his anointed priest king. That's the message that these eight visions will will see in these eight visions over the next several weeks. Now, from that much bigger picture of the eight visions, we focus today on just one vision. An angelic rider on a red horse and his posse of patrolling horsemen. This vision then becomes the vehicle through which God sees, uh, through which Zechariah sees that God's jealousy brings future hope for his people. That's where we're heading today. God's jealousy brings future hope for his people. And that future hope is restoration, it it is grace and, and comfort. In God's presence. So let's walk through this first vision together. We'll, we'll start reading in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, 
I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was, a stand, he was standing among the myrtle trees by the deep, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seven years, 70 years? Let's stop there for just a minute. These 70 years mentioned in verse 12 are a reference to how long Israel's judgment in exile was supposed to last. Years prior, Jeremiah prophesied that that God would banish Israel from their homeland. He would send them into exile in Babylon, and, and and that exile, he says, would last for 70 years, about the span of a lifetime. This was the result of God's anger over Israel's sin, as we saw last week in verse 2. But something else to remember is that Jeremiah, even before the exile began, Jeremiah, he promised hope for God's people beyond the exile. God's anger wasn't going to last forever. His judgment in exile had a stopping point. He wouldn't forsake his covenant bride, ultimately. So in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14, he says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's Jeremiah's promise before the exile happened. Now fast forward a hundred years or so to Zechariah, who was preaching after the exile. Jeremiah's promise came true. Israel stayed in captivity 70 years and now they had returned home, but the question remained, where's the welfare? Where's the future? Where's the hope? Where's the restoration? Where are the fortunes 
Where is the defeat of our enemies? Even the angel of the Lord wants to know this in verse 12. How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? You see, this posse of angelic horsemen that we see in verses 8 and 10, they didn't bring back a very promising report here. The idea is that they were sent out by the Lord as scouts to to scope out the state of, of all the nations. That's one thing that makes these horsemen different from the horsemen that we'll see in in chapter 6. The the horsemen that are in chapter 6 have war chariots behind them. These horses here don't have any chariots. That makes them swifter to check out the land before God takes any further action. So they're, they're acting as scouts and they survey the world and it says the world is at rest. But don't get the wrong impression. This isn't a good kind of rest. This is a bad kind of rest. The Lord says in verse 15, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. They're chilled out. The picture is that the world is sitting on its laurels while the city of the king lies in ruin and God's people remain vulnerable. The world is living it up without worry or care that that their lives oppose the Lord of hosts and oppose his kingdom agenda. And so the angel of the Lord cries, how long will you show no, show no mercy? In other words, these are your chosen people, God. You made a covenant with them. You chose Jerusalem to be your dwelling place. And Zion, where are you? Where is your mercy? Where is your salvation? Why aren't you acting yet? But this is the entire point of the vision. God is acting. Even if Israel can't yet see his kingdom in full, God is acting. God hasn't forgotten his people and his covenant. In fact, the the vision shows that he's readying himself to fight against the nations on behalf of his people. The angelic scouts have already gone out and returned from patrolling the earth. He already sent them out, even before Zechariah gets the vision. The Lord of hosts' angel armies have already initiated part of the Lord's plan by going out and then returning with this news. And the Lord is pulling back the curtains of heaven just a bit to let Zechariah and in turn you and me in on some of the action. Something else to note... Glance over for just a second to the prophet Haggai. And notice the word that came to Haggai on this very same day, the 24th day, just two months earlier. This is Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. Note this, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Horses. 
Horses represented speed and military domination. In this case, the horses represent mighty nations standing in the way of God's kingdom agenda. We can even think back to the Exodus on this one. That's where Haggai's pulling his, his, his wording from. When Pharaoh and his chariots, his chariot armies, they corner Israel at the Red Sea. The people didn't stand a chance against the horsemen, but God came to their rescue. And Exodus 14 says that the Lord, the Lord threw the horses and the riders into the sea. He drowned them in the sea before them. And now Haggai is basically telling the people, God's about to do it again. God's about to overthrow the horse and its rider once again. That's two months exactly prior to Zechariah's prophecy. Now Zechariah comes in and he adds to Haggai's message. He picks up where Haggai left off with the horsemen. And Zechariah shows us that God has a few army horses of his own. And the black riders of this world ain't got nothing on this angelic posse. They are swift and they reflect the sovereign power the Lord holds over the universe. There's not a single inch on this planet that escapes their gaze. Nothing flies under their radar. They see all, they know all, his armies cover all. And then on top of that, these horsemen are standing among the myrtle trees by the deep, it says. The ESV reads, in the glen. I think a better translation is by the deep here. Two things to note here then. The myrtle trees were some of the leafy trees used for building the booths for the Feast of Tabernacles. You get this in Nehemiah 8, 15. You can find that also in Leviticus 23. They used these myrtle trees, these leafy trees, for building the booths for the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was designed to commemorate God delivering Israel from Egypt's tyranny and bringing them into the Promised Land. And what is one of the main parts of that deliverance from Egypt? Exodus 15:5, casting Pharaoh and his chariots into the deep. They're ready to go. Let's cast the nations into the deep. Save your people. In other words, these horsemen among the myrtle trees by the deep called to mind God's past salvation at the Exodus. In the same way God fought for his people there, he stands ready at the present to fight for them again. Things may look dismal and hopeless and woefully quiet, but he has readied himself for war. So with the vision of the angelic rider and his posse of patrolling horses, we're getting a picture that God is in fact acting to save his people. Israel may not be able to see it yet, but he's acting. That's why he pulls back the curtains a bit. His angel armies are already preparing, already preparing the troops and crying out for God to act on behalf of his people. And it's, with, and it's within this drama, this drama of of, God, of the Lord's past faithfulness to save his people and his present faithfulness to save his people, that we hear the Lord speak a word about his future faithfulness to save his people. Let's keep going now in verse 13. This comes in response to the angel's cry, How long? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. This is just like the Lord, isn't it? Gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His people didn't deserve anything but wrath, yet the Lord comes with words of grace and comfort. Hasn't he done this with us too? Hasn't he brought us words of grace and comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ when we have blown it again and again and again? God is into restoring his people, showing them grace. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Now that's a peculiar way of talking, isn't it? Jealousy? God? And jealousy? What do we make of this? Well, let's give it some context. In the Old Testament, God's jealousy is covenant language. The first time we see it is in Exodus chapter 20. God makes a covenant with Israel at Sinai, and, and in the second commandment, he forbids idolatry. And the basis for that commandment is this, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's part of his character. I am a jealous God. Meaning he is jealous for his people's exclusive worship. You can be this way when you are God. You can be this way when you are the only supremely worthy one. When you are supremely precious and worthy of worship, you can be jealous for exclusive worship. So he is jealous for his people's exclusive worship. If they belong to him, he brought them out of the Exodus. If they, out of, out of Egypt, if they belong to him, they can belong to no other. Ezekiel even compares the Lord's jealousy for Israel as a, as a sort of jealousy a husband feels for his bride. Israel belongs to Yahweh, and Yahweh won't just wink if she starts flirting with other gods. But of course, Israel does start flirting with other gods. They get in bed with the idols, so to speak, and God finally has enough and sends her into Babylon... He wasn't just going to let his name be mocked among the nations and pretend like her idolatry was no big deal. His jealousy for her exclusive worship required him to act, required him to judge. But what we're seeing here, now after the exile, is that God's jealousy for his people's worship is moving him to save her. The same jealousy to uphold his honor that sent them into Babylon was now the same jealousy that would comfort her. Does that mean he just overlooks her sins? 
Does that mean you think he just sweeps her adultery under the rug like it's no big deal? Not at all. Rather, it means that he is so jealous for his people's worship that he made a way for them to enjoy his worship and uphold his honor in forgiving them simultaneously. He made a way for them to enjoy his worship and uphold his honor in their forgiveness simultaneously. You see, we learn from other places under the law that the Lord's jealousy for his honor among his people necessitates atonement for their sin if he is not to consume them in his jealousy. The Lord's jealousy for his honor among his people necessitates atonement for their sin if he is not to consume them in his jealousy. So if he's not willing to consume his covenant people in Babylon with his jealousy so that they are no more at all, but he instead brings them out as a, as a remnant to comfort and restore them, then it must mean he has designed a way for them to enjoy his worship without fear of being consumed by his jealousy. He can even talk of returning to them, not to consume them, but to, but to bless them with his presence and to dwell with them in his new city. Brothers and sisters, this is why God Almighty crucified His Son, Jesus Christ. God's jealousy for His honor in your life necessitated atonement for your sin if He is not to consume you in His jealousy. And He offered up Jesus Christ as that atonement so that you would not be consumed in his jealousy for all of your false worship and all of your idolatry. All of your sins wiped away by his blood. All the fierce anger you deserved, satisfied. All of Christ's righteousness given to you by faith. All so that your life will forever reflect God's honor and God's glory and God's praise rightly. You may have sins galore staring at you in the face that you know do not honor the Lord. But God was so jealous for you that he punished your sins on his son to bring you into his presence and let your life shine with the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you. In Jesus Christ, God entered into a new covenant relationship with you. If you are trusting in Jesus, you belong to God and to no other. And that means that his jealousy no longer works for your destruction. Like it will do for all of those who are outside of Christ. His jealousy actually works for your good. It worked for your good on the cross when he took away your sins. It works for your good now as the Spirit drives away your sins and God disciplines you when you are in the wrong. It works for your good on the last day when God ends all sin in your life and defeats all your enemies to the glory and praise of His name. So He was also doing for the remnant in Israel centuries ago. 
just that they were on the other side of the cross. Their sins would fall on Jesus too at the cross. And this is why God's jealousy works now in their favor. Notice again in verse 15 that his jealousy no longer works against his people. God's jealousy now works for his people. The idea is that the nations took Israel into exile. This, this wording here that he was angry but a little, they, they furthered the disaster. Right? The nations, they, they took Israel into exile, but the nations went too far in punishing them, and they did it all with arrogance, without regard for the Lord and his reign. It'd be like you spanking your son for a wrongdoing. And then someone else comes in and starts beating him to a pulp. You mean for your discipline to save him. They mean to destroy him. And you know what kind of jealousy you feel for your son. Your love for your son is so intense it protects him at all costs. This is the way the Lord's jealousy is working on behalf of his people. to deliver them and to restore them into his presence. The vision of the rider and his patrolling horsemen is all driving toward the revelation of God's jealousy working for his people. And this jealousy working for his people brings with it their future hope. A new Jerusalem and Zion, unending mercies, prosperity and comfort and the assurance of God's presence. Read it with me in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. A few things to note here. Notice how many things Israel is doing to make this happen. Oh, that's right, it's zero. Nothing. The text says nothing about what they're doing to bring God's favor down on Jerusalem. God initiates everything. Restoration always begins with what God does for us, not with what we do for God. Everything that will happen to bring a new Jerusalem will happen by grace. It's another way of talking about God's unmerited favor. Then we have a reference to the Lord's house here, also in verse 16. The Lord's house refers to His temple, His, his dwelling place in Jerusalem. The place he chose to to reveal his his glory. And as with the other prophets, references to the temple are often associated with the temple mount itself in Jerusalem, as well as the city of the great king, the Davidic king, Zion. They go hand in hand to give us a picture of, of God dwelling among his people through the reign of his anointed king in this sanctuary like city. It's bringing together temple and the mountain of the king, basically, to, 
this sanctuary-like city that God is promising to, to build and reign with His people. And the promise then expands to, to, to even greater heights as, as God rebuilds His sanctuary-like city, then prosperity will start to spread out from there to the other cities in Judah as well. The idea is that these cities will gush with goodness. And that goodness is finally bound up with God's comforting presence among His people. At the end of verse 17, the Lord will again comfort Zion. They will experience Comfort from all their enemies. Comfort from all their sins. Comfort in God's forever presence. And you can see how this might land on a community that sits in apathy and ruin. This comes to them as good news. This is the future hope for God's people. All of it motivated by God's jealousy. And if this future hope is motivated by God's jealousy, then... Nothing can stand in his way from bringing it to fruition. You get these, uh, as when, when Isaiah is talking about many of the same things that Zechariah is talking about here. Uh, Zechariah often, often associates it with the Lord's jealousy. Or sometimes in, in our English translations, it's, it's translated as, a, as his zeal. Right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. These kinds of things. He wraps himself in zeal. This kind of language of, of jealousy. He rouses himself like a man of war on behalf of his people. Isaiah 42, 13 there. The idea is nothing can stand in his way of establishing his kingship in the temple city once again. Now, in some sense, God's promise to rebuild his house encouraged the people in Zechariah's day to rebuild the physical temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra chapter 6 even tells us that the Jews built and prospered under the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, so, so much so that they finished the temple in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, so about 516 B.C. But we mustn't think that this is as far as Zechariah's prophecy goes. A couple of places in Ezra and Haggai tell us that even when they finished the second temple, the people wept because it didn't come close to what Solomon's temple was like. And there was also coming a day when, when God would, would once again shake the nations so that the latter glory of this house would be greater than the former glory. More than that, the cities of Judah, they hardly ever overflowed with the kind of prosperity that he's talking about here. And when we get to Zechariah chapter 2, it says that the prosperity would be so great that you wouldn't even be able to measure its walls. They just keep going and going and going because they can't contain all the people and the livestock from all the nations. Which means this temple looks forward to another temple where the glory of God's presence dwells. The earthly Jerusalem and temple under the Mosaic Covenant were only shadows of the true realities under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus Christ is the new and greater temple. This is John chapter 2. By raising the temple of his body from the dead, Jesus became the new and greater temple. 
In him is the glory of God fully revealed. In him we meet with God. And when we place our trust in Jesus, guess what? We become God's temple as the church, Ephesians 2 tells us. And we become part of the Jerusalem that is from above, Galatians 4 tells us. And we even come to this heavenly Zion, as Hebrews 12 tells us. Get this in Hebrews 12, verse 22. You, church, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's no comfort coming from the blood of Abel. All the blood of Abel can do is point at you and say, guilty, guilty, guilty. It's the blood of Jesus that brings the word of comfort, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. And that's the Zion you belong to when you trust in Christ. Those are the words that come out of Zion. Forgiven. And just like God's presence assured His people in Zechariah's day that He would dwell with them in His future temple city, so God's presence with us today by the Holy Spirit assures that God will dwell with us in His future temple city. One day Jesus Christ's feet will touch down in Jerusalem. One day his kingdom will stretch from sea to sea. One day the new and final Jerusalem will come where God himself in Jesus Christ will be our temple. And we will dwell with him and he with us. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, Revelation says, and Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our future hope. This is good news, brothers and sisters. But let us not leave missing a few things about God we must cling to now before that final day comes. Number one, if you are in Jesus Christ, remember that the sovereign God is always working to save you. If you are in Christ, the sovereign God is always working to save you. If you're not in Christ, God Almighty is against you. And that's a terrifying thing when you see this man of war spoken of in the Scriptures who wraps himself with zeal to destroy all the nations. You will not stand in his way. But you can be in Christ so that God is for you simply by believing his word about Jesus and giving your life to following Jesus. God will have you too if you bend your knee to his King. And when you bend your knee to his king, he will put you in Christ so that he is always then working to save you. Even when you have difficulty seeing his kingdom advancing, God is faithfully working to save his people. This vision from Zechariah should give you hope in the midst of adversity and trial that God is still on his throne that God's angel armies are working, and that God will bring His kingdom of peace on earth. 
He will not let the nations sit at ease forever as they slaughter children in abortion clinics, and evil regimes oppress the poor and the widow, and leaders chuck sound principles to gain the popular vote. God has reserved a day for shaking the nations and bringing them to their demise so that every knee will eventually bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When your faith is stymied by the seeming success of evil, let Zechariah's vision help you see that God doesn't forget his covenant people. He holds your destiny secure in the new Jerusalem and the evil world is no challenge for him getting you there. And even if a few of your trials and adversities are the results of your own sin, and the Father is disciplining you for that sin, like he did Israel in the exile, never think for a minute that you're too far gone to cry out for mercy. Or too far away for God to hear you. The angel of the Lord doesn't hesitate to cry out for God's mercy on his people. How much more should God's elect sons and daughters covered by the blood of Jesus feel the liberty to cry out for mercy? Who've been given boldness to enter the Lord's presence. He promises return for his people and comes with gracious and comforting words here. For you who are in Christ, God's jealousy is working for you all the time. Your greatest threat, it already passed in the death of Jesus Christ. Your greatest threat is finished. And now the days of grace are at work to bring you home. God is always at work to save his people. Even the pains he brings us drive us back into his loving arms. Secondly, remember that God comforts his people when he dwells among them. God comforts his people when he dwells among them. Now the culmination of this this comforting presence will come eventually in the new heavens and the new earth, but, but one big reason why we gather as a church is to experience some of that comfort now. Some of the comforts of the new heavens and the new earth come now as we gather together. We gather now to experience God's comforting presence through the various gifts and ministries the Holy Spirit gives to His people. This is what you see in the New Testament. God is a God of comfort and some of that comfort is distributed through His people bringing it to each other. The church in Acts says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Is it the case that people from from all walks of life and all kinds of sin, is it the case that they find Redeemer Church to be a people of comfort? Do they experience God's comfort as we interact with them and and give them the person of, of Jesus? 
The world is offering people all kinds of comfort in money and false intimacy and a false sense of security. What comfort are they finding here in our church? And is it the comfort that God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. I've read that a hundred times and haven't seen that command in the midst of all the other commands. Comfort one another. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Or maybe one you're more familiar with, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves experience by God. Why does God command us to comfort one another? Because He has comforted us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what characterizes the heavenly people who belong to Zion. So let us gather often to get some of that comfort and give some of that comfort. Pray that our Sunday mornings will be filled with comfort, our care groups and women's meetings and student meetings, and all of our meetings, however big or small, they will be filled with this kind of, of comfort. Get the impression, you know, half the time we're meeting together, it's just, oh, I send again and again. Next week, I send again. Nobody's offering comfort. We're not just getting together to report sins. We're here to comfort one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, forgiven, brother. Now walk. Look, he's with you. The Spirit's with you. God's for you. His jealousy's working after you. Comfort one another with these words. And isn't there also a word here for husbands, too? If God is the one who comforts his covenant bride, doesn't this challenge us to bring such comforting words of hope and grace to our wives? Isn't there a word here for parents as well? And why Paul says not to provoke your children to wrath, fathers. Our parenting, yes, it will involve discipline for sin, but it must involve comfort as well if it is to reflect God the Father who is in heaven. We must hold our children after their discipline. We must comfort them with grace after we've corrected their wrongs. Our parenting must reflect the way God has treated us in His covenant. Our God has returned to us with mercy in Jesus Christ and grace, and He is jealous to work for our good at every turn. Finally, remember that God's, God's jealousy in Christ ensures that we will make it home. God's jealousy in Christ ensures that we will make it home. The intensity of His love for us in Christ will never tire. His commitment to His covenant will never waver. All that is necessary to bring you into the new Jerusalem 
God will accomplish. And that was settled for us at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan's sin and suffering will wear you out in this life. Death will eventually take your body to the grave. But for all who know Jesus Christ, God is jealous to finish His work in you and to bring you into His sanctuary-like city on the last day. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee that that day is coming. Emmanuel, God with us, He's with us, it says, till the end of the age. So we ought to celebrate. We ought to leave today celebrating, singing, because His presence with us now in the Holy Spirit means that the new city is all that much closer to us. And so I want to call the worship team up today Right, I mean, right now, we normally just jump right into prayer. We're going to sing about God taking us home. So why don't you stand with us and sing of the Lord's gracious and comforting promise and the hope of the city yet to come.